Good afternoon. It's Friday the 2nd of September 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Cold News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me via video link is Patrick Henningsen uh, and, uh, from the United States and uh, Vanessa Bailey from uh, Syria and Damascus. So uh, we'll get straight on here with, uh, well, this is the last chance to vote if you're a Tory party member. Uh, today is the day uh, Liz and Rishi uh, will uh, sort out their competition this weekend and on Monday the uh, announcement will be made as to who it's going to be. Uh, I'm obviously putting my money on uh, on Liz. Uh, Patrick, I think you have your money on Liz. I'm not betting on this election. I can't. It's illegal to bet on politics in the U United States right now. So um, unfortunately, I won't be able to participate in the gambling. Okay, I'm sorry to hear about that. Well, there, <laughs> that's fine. Vanessa, uh, any thoughts? Uh, you're going for Liz as well because she's going to be as, as Foreign Secretary, the best person to look after Syria, Russia and China, right? Oh, God. I mean, they're both hideous. I, I don't know how you can... If I had to bet, I would also go with um, Liz. Yes. Oh, okay. It pains me to say. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll wait with bated breath over the weekend for that. Uh, but let's move on to more serious issues uh, and the cost of living. Uh, and this morning, uh, BBC was pushing out an interview with this guy, Stephen Fitzpatrick from Ovo Energy. And I just thought I would uh, uh, take you through the point that he was making, because obviously the question is, how is anybody going to be able to afford uh, their energy bills this winter and into next year? Uh, because the peak in terms of cost is going to be uh, sort of April, May time next year, according to the forecasts so far. Uh, of course, uh, winter is the hardest time of year at the same time. So this was his idea. The challenge that we've got, he said, is that we don't know how long the situation is going to last for. It could take, it could be years of higher prices. He said, uh, one of the ways we think this could be done most effectively, that is helping people through this uh, problem, is by launching a tariff deficit mechanism uh, where we lower the price of energy, uh, but we do it for a certain number of units per household at a lower price band that everybody gets access to. And then over and above that, consumers would pay the full price. Uh, wh what that would mean is that it would disproportionately benefit lower income households, but at the same time provide everybody with the incentive to find energy savings. Uh, and Patrick, very briefly, that is the key point here. This is about behavior change. Uh, it seems to me this is effectively Great Reset, World, World Economic Forum, Green New Deal, whatever uh, sort of phrase you want to attach to it. It's the effect of policy. Yeah, these are not solutions to the problem. This is the thing. It's not costing uh, the power companies or the state or, or anybody uh, more money to uh, extract the energy uh, or the natural gas from the ground uh, or gather, you know, uh, whatever they need to burn coal or whatever. Yeah, there there is an increase in cost in, in some transportation and, you know, a marginal uh, overall increases. The big uh, price increases are coming from this unbridled uh, energy market, this sort of free-floating energy market. This is what is going to bankrupt uh, people all around uh, Europe and the UK, uh, in the United States as well, but but very much so in Europe and the UK. So the politicians don't have any don't have any solutions for the runaway energy markets. So they can't tell you that the prices are not going to rise another thirty or forty percent. Uh, in January, February, March, next year, etc. Where does it end? This is the problem. There's fundamental distortions in the energy markets as a result of what has been set up post 
2000. And now, not only that, because of the policies that are being pursued by the government, i.e. sanctions and suicidal uh, green policies, net zero carbon policies, and how we're getting our energy, trying to cancel Russian energy, etc. And these are causing even more distortions in the market, force multipliers that are, you know, basically giving us what we have now, which is uh, effectively bankrupting working class uh, and middle class families, individuals uh, right across the country, right across Europe. Uh, indeed, uh, and uh, that's uh, absolutely correct. So just a little bit of light relief. On Wednesday, I think it was Debbie was talking about uh, the fact that the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation were investing in, in new toilets. Uh, this is the the, uh, the page from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, uh, reinventing the toilet challenge, a brief history if anybody wants to go and have a look at it. But anyway, a couple of days ago, uh, Samsung announced uh, that they've developed a prototype for this. Uh, and uh, so this is the key paragraph. Uh, the system enables the treated water to be fully recycled. Solid waste is dehydrated, dried, and combusted into ashes, while liquid waste is treated through a bi biological uh, purification process. And I, I'm just thinking, well, okay, uh, are we going to use our toilets to heat our homes uh, at this point, Patrick? Because this is this is how ridiculous this whole thing is getting. I think that's a brilliant idea, Mike, and uh, it just shows how um, you are so well placed to be in a, a position in the ministry to make such decisions, being so creative. Uh, yes. You understand, you recognize all the sustainability challenges, Mike. That's a brilliant idea. We need to go full bore ahead on that. I, I think so. Uh, but let's uh, come on to the issue of smart meters, uh, Patrick, uh, and the question, well, you're describing this as uh, the long con. <sighs> You know, how long have we been talking about smart meters, Mike? Uh, there's been a lot of people doing activist campaigns about them. A lot of people have been focusing on the radiation aspect or the uh, uh, the EMF aspect of this, causing people to be irritable, losing sleep, stress, and things like that. So the health problems associated or alleged health problems associated with having a smart meter in your house. But the other conversation, which we've had as well in the UK column, is what exactly is the purpose of these smart meters in terms of regulating uh, an individual's energy use at home or maybe charging them in real time according to fluctuations in the market from this scam energy market, which we just talked about a minute ago. And here, now we're, we're finally, Mike, seeing the end game. We're finally seeing the end game here. Uh, you've got a whole a bunch of customers, in this case, 22,000 customers signed up for this special uh, rewards program, AC Rewards. Okay, so they thought that they were going to basically get some savings or some benefits uh, from this. But effectively, what they signed up for uh, is they're being locked, their thermostats are being locked remotely on the hottest day of the year. This is in Denver, uh, in this case. And so this is incredible what's happened here. And uh, I, I don't know if we have uh, a video, which we could show in a minute, but uh, the, the way that they've sold this uh, is that the thermostat companies are basically saying this is about convenience, et cetera. And uh, they find that uh, they, they won't be able to turn their air conditioning up because this is during peak hours. So remote control of your air conditioning. Now imagine if this was in the winter, Mike, uh, and it's the coldest day of the year. And the energy companies, because it's peak time and you've uh, unfortunately signed up for this uh, rewards uh, program, uh, they're saying, you know, you can't have any more heat 
uh, in your house. Just, just not going to happen. And this is because of the smart meter system. Okay, so I mean, this is just really uh, unbelievable. I think we do have a video of this uh, from the local affiliate uh, in Denver, Colorado, if we have that video. Yes, let's roll out. Another hot one today with temperatures in the low 90s. Even Mike Nelson would tell you Tuesday was a hot one. The heat goes on. Which is why Tony Tallarico tried to crank up the AC. I mean, it was 90 out and it was right during the peak period. That's when he found out he had no control of his thermostat. A message from Excel on his thermostat saying temperature locked during an energy emergency. And normally when we see a message like that, we're able to override it. Um, in this case, we weren't. So our thermostat was locked in at 78 or 79. Turns out he's not alone. Excel confirms to contact Denver 7. 22,000 customers were locked out of their smart thermostats for hours on Tuesday. It's a voluntary program. Let's remember that this is something that customers choose to be a part of. Um, based on the incentives. Excel VP Emmett Romine says customers enrolled in the Colorado AC Rewards Program sign up to get money back, but give up some control for the greater good. So it, it helps everybody for people to participate in these programs. It is a bit uncomfortable for a short period of time, but, but it's very, very helpful. And it's rare. This is the first time since the six-year-old program started that customers could not override their smart thermostats. Excel says an unexpected outage in Pueblo, combined with hot weather and heavy AC use, led to the last-minute energy emergency. To me, an emergency means there is, you know, life, limb, or, you know, some other danger out there, some, you know, massive wildfires. Tony's all about saving energy with solar panels and smart home systems, but he says he had no idea locked thermostats came with that, and it's not what he signed up for. Even if it's a once in a blue moon uh, situation, it just doesn't sit right with us to not be able to control our own thermostat in our house. Now, now Mike, we've, we've spoken about this issue about smart meters many times, and you've rightly pointed out uh, that they're going to be able to gouge customers uh, in the future with smart meters uh, that are basically tracking uh, peak use price, real time, et cetera. They, all these people, Mike, signed up because they thought they'd get money back or they'd get some savings. So they signed up for this rewards program. Um, but it's, it's I, basically what we had, similar to what we had warned about many times previously. Yes, indeed. So let's just uh, put this, uh, this graphic on screen now and, and have a read this. So it says, by participating in AC rewards, adjustments are made to your smart thermostat during the hottest summer days. When the demand for electricity is the highest, you'll help us manage these peaks and ease the strain on the electrical grid. Uh, you'll be cut back at the time your central air works uh, to cool your home with control events. But Patrick, uh, this is, I mean, what's, he was obviously the, the uh, participant in that interview was obviously confused about what constitutes an emergency, but the emergency was for the grid itself and the fact that the, the grid was not coping with a failure. Uh, and of course, this is representative of the collapse of infrastructure in so-called first world countries, every, every, you know, the United States, Europe, UK, all experiencing the same type of lack of resilience. So how do you know as a customer whether this is happening, whether there's actually a failure in the grid or if there's an actual shortage of energy that's feeding the grid or a shortage? And we've unfortunately lost Patrick. So we'll hopefully uh, come back to that in a second. Um, well, let's uh, let's just uh, move on, or we'll just show this because uh, it says here.
Control events may occur anytime during the cooling season. Uh, you'll have the ability to opt out of control events at any time and receive optional notifications of control events, either from your thermostat, mobile device, or web app. On rare occasions, system emergencies may cause a control event that cannot be overridden. Uh, and then finally, it says uh, Excel incentivizes the pro program by offering uh, one-time enrollment credit of $100 uh, and an annual credit of $25 for joining the program. Well, that's a pretty small uh, um, recompense for what's going on there, Patrick. Yeah, it is, Mike. And uh, as I was saying before, uh, that you don't know whether the problem you're experiencing called this control event that's been implemented by the power companies, whether that's a result of something, an actual failure in the grid or an actual shortage of energy, you don't know. Uh, you're just taking their word for it up at central command. And so it can be very easy to uh, control large uh, portions of the population who are signed up or on these types of smart meter systems. And they just have to take the word of uh, HQ that this is why that you're experiencing what you're experiencing. Uh, and, and the idea that you can save, this is gonna save you money to sign up to any of these is kind of ridiculous. If you think of the massive fluctuations uh, in the cost of wholesale energy and the gouging that keeps going on from these power companies. Yes, so let's just have a look at uh, a graphic here that you've produced uh, on smart meters. Uh, and it's saying one in three homes have problems with their smart meter, according to the 2019 U-Switch survey. They don't automatically save you money and the meter may not always connect to the internet. And the question is, what happens if it doesn't? Exactly. Listen, the list of problems with these smart meters is endless, basically. The, uh, the displays can stop uh, responding. If you look at the, the U-Switch survey has a, a lot of interesting data in it. The installation uh, takes hours. Uh, the whole machine can stop functioning. Uh, the meters may stop being, quote, smart uh, after you switch uh, providers. If uh, you know, so, and the, for instance, if you won't, uh, it won't save you money or uh, fight climate change, you know, because isn't that the whole reason why these, this is how the, these systems have, have been sold. And, and again, they won't, can, sometimes won't connect to the internet. Um, and so the anxiety from smart meters, um, put the EMF issue aside, the thing, uh, they, they don't work. Where, where does that leave you if you're, um, you know, at the mercy of this technology, so. Yes, yeah, indeed, good questions. Right, okay, so let's move on then to this. Uh, this was tweeted out by the Office for National Statistics this morning saying uh, we're publishing uh, a new release on the behavior, behavioral impacts of rising automotive fuel prices. Fuel prices peaked at 48% above the previous year in July 2022, with consumers reducing their fuel demand uh, their fuel demanded per transaction by 16% in the same period. Uh, but they went on to say uh, that consumers demanded 6% more fuel per transaction than the previous period in response to Russian invasion of Ukraine. So although it's down on uh, 12 months ago, it's up on the previous month. Uh, and they're saying that the uh, number of adults facing cost of living increases uh, who have cut, uh, cut back on non-essential vehicle travel increased by 14%. Uh, over the previous period. Um, so the impact's clearly pretty huge. Uh, and then we've got uh, this, uh, because if we're talking about the effect on the poorest in the uh, community, uh, then this from my London, South London Food Bank feeding thousands may not make it to Christmas due to 30,000 pound energy bill 
uh, just to run their fridges. Uh, we can't go forward because we've no funding and we don't have any sense uh, that our bills are going, uh, what our bills are going to be going forward, says the We Care Food Bank. Uh, and uh, so that is a pretty significant situation for people that are reliant on these kind of services. And of course, uh, they're reliant on energy. Um, and finally, on this segment, uh, Patrick, uh, US life expectancy, the lowest in decades after dropping nearly a full year in 2021. This is really an incredible uh, story, and this is indicative of, of where we're at in our sort of advanced Western uh, democracies and civilizations. One of the biggest metrics, wh wherever you're looking in the world, if you're looking at a government and looking at how good of a job a government is doing and how well-functioning society is, there's two metrics that you can look at. One of them is infant mortality. Infant mortality rates is usually a pretty good barometer of where uh, healthcare systems are at, uh, where other sort of you know social support mechanisms are, et cetera, technology, et cetera. The other is average life expectancy. Uh, so in the United States, a sharp drop from 2019 to 2021 on life expectancy, wait for the 2022 numbers to come out uh, in the new year. Uh, so what does this mean? This means you could say this is an absolute abject failure of government or of a society when you start seeing statistics like this. Now, there's a lot of reasons why we could uh, say what's feeding into this trend. You've got diet, you've got uh, the overuse of pharmaceuticals, you've got overexposure to chemicals, you've got uh, life in a digital, swimming in a digital sea of EMF. You've got all these things. Plus, we could add the vaccine issue uh, into this as well. That's maybe something you might expand on if you correlate these things with all-cause all mortality, uh, for instance. But the bottom line is, this is a total failure. This is guilty, total failure of government, of society, when you start seeing trends like this. So whatever uh, the job of government is, it's not up to scratch. Uh, indeed. And uh, just uh, at the bottom of that graphic, actually, uh, Patrick, had said U.S. deaths from drug overdoses hit high driven by fentanyl. And in the United States, this is a particular problem. In the U.K. and Scotland, it's a problem as well. But uh, the drug issue in the States should not be underestimated. No, no, it shouldn't. And you can also correlate this with lockdowns, of course. If you're going to look at this data set from 2020, for instance, and 2021. Um, but, you know, in terms of demographics, um, so th this, this is a serious uh, to a drop in for Hispanic, uh, blacks and whites, uh, you know, around 2.4 years drop in terms of life expectancy. Native Americans, 6.6 .6 years drop in life expectancy over this period. So there's one uh, group of, of people, one demographic that's getting absolutely, uh, you know, hit with this trend. And so th there's, there should be. Uh, congressional hearings about this. There should be public hearings about this to find out and try to discover what's, you know, what are the sort of mechanisms that are driving this, especially for, for instance, Native Americans. I mean, that's it's, it's apocalyptic uh, yeah. if you look at this in terms of, you know, trends. So it's, it, it, this is something that people need to pay attention to in Europe um, and the UK as well. Look at these numbers um, in this year, looking back last three years. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, uh, Vanessa. Um, yeah, I just wanted to ask also if the lack of access to healthcare in the States, which has been deteriorating dramatically over the last two years, whether that's having an effect as well. 
Well, I think in the United States, uh, you have two, the healthcare issue is very complex because it's a structural issue. We have a different, uh, you know, private health insurers, but we also have a huge medical um, uh, insurance uh, programs from the federal government, Medicaid and Medicare. Uh, we probably spend uh, a lot more per capita um, than most countries uh, for healthcare that's being rationed at the government level. And if you're from the UK and, and you look at the NHS and you want to have a conversation about rationing care uh, and overinflated prices within the medical industrial complex, there's a lot of commonalities there, but you have this huge private insurance. But a lot of the private insurers are being paid um, through corporate. So of course, if you're employed, uh, you likely you'll have an insurance package um, connected with your employer. If you're unemployed or you're on benefits, um, you w most likely, or you're under uh, senior citizens, for instance, retirees, pensioners, uh, will have met some access to either state or federal Medicaid or Medicare. So, but for Native Americans, for instance, um, there's a whole there's whole other issues, social and problematic issues with access, um, with services, uh, with drug abuse, alcohol abuse as well, and some reservations, for instance, that are going to feed into that particular thing. But it's a systemic issue uh, the United States has. And, you know, for the argument for centralized state health care, um, if you look at the total failure of the NHS in Britain as a result of COVID, um, it, it, you could also make the argument that centralized health care can also become a disaster um, if it's managed the way that the UK runs it at the moment. Uh, indeed. Well, let's uh, come on to centralized health care in the UK and uh, GP earnings. Uh, the NHS Digital has released the, uh, the latest GP earnings and expenses estimates for 2020-2021 uh, and they're showing uh, a significant increase, 11% uh, rise compared to the uh, same figures last year. So uh, this is England, the estimated average income before tax of GPs in either general medical services or a prim uh, primary medical services practice was £111,900 for combined contractor and salary GPs. Uh, that's, this is for England, 142,000 uh, for contractor GPs, 64,900 for salaried. Uh, and uh, Scotland, not too much different, 107,000. Uh, Wales, 108,000. Uh, Northern Ireland, 104,000. This, of course, has uh, seen the uh, usual outcries uh, because, of course, uh, GPs totally inaccessible at the moment for many, many people. Um, now let's uh, have a look at this. Uh, that's you know one of the things, uh, Patrick uh, Vanessa, that, that we've seen over the last uh, period has been this idea of mass medication, uh, fluoride being one, uh, mand mandates on vaccines being another, uh, and this issue of uh, of, uh, of amending the bread and flour regulations uh, has been uh, one that's been discussed several times on the program because the government keeps announcing it. Well, they've announced it uh, once again. So folic acid is to be added to non-wholemeal wholemeal flour across the UK to help prevent life-threatening brain and spinal conditions in fetuses. Uh, DEFRA, you know, this is DEFRA that has launched this. Uh, so the Department of uh, Environment, Food and Rural Affairs uh, has launched a UK-wide consultation on the bread and flour regulations uh, on the amount of folic acid to be added to flour. Uh, and uh, of course, therefore, nobody gets the choice uh, about whether to take it or not. It's assumed that if you're going to eat bread, you're going to get it. Um, whereas in the past, it was up to pregnant women to decide uh, whether or not they would uh, they would take this as a supplement. 
Um, so this consultation uh, opened uh, yesterday. Uh, it closes on the 23rd of November, 2022. Uh, and if you want to search uh, online for amending the bread and flour regulations 1998, uh, you will find uh, that. And so the government is asking for opinions uh, from the general public on this. Uh, and uh, I re ask everybody to, to give their opinions on it on whether you think that this type of sort of default mass medication is the right way forward. Uh, and then finally, I just wanted to mention this from the BBC, mystery pneumonia, Argentina investigates three deaths. They've apparently uh, discovered uh, patient zero. Uh, they're, not, they're saying that they've ruled out COVID, they've ruled out flu, they don't know what it is, um, but uh, I'm sure we'll hear lots about it in the not too distant future. Sorry, one more just to mention here, and that is uh, from the uh, legal press in India, uh, Bombay, High Court has issued a notice to Serum Institute uh, and Bill Gates on a plea for uh, compensation alleging a death due to Covishield, which is the uh, COVID vaccination in uh, India. So the Bombay High Court, this uh, website reporting, recently sought responses from Serum Institute of India and Microsoft founder Bill Gates in a plea filed against, by one uh, Dilip uh, Nunawat uh, seeking compensation for the death of his daughter, who he claimed uh, was uh, killed as a result of side effects of COVID vaccine, Covishield. Uh, Gates uh, involved with the uh, Serum Institute of India uh, and the, uh, the Indian authorities have acknowledged that uh, this uh, young lady was, in fact, uh, did die as a result of uh, Covishield. So we will watch that one uh, with interest. Now, uh, let's move on. If you like what the UK column does and you'd like to support us, uh, then please head over to uh, community.ukcolumn.org uh, there are options to help us out there, or you could pick something up at the UK Column shop. Uh, but please do share our material on the various platforms, uh, and uh, that would be very much appreciated. Um, so let's uh, move on to uh, Ukraine and so on. Uh, and we're starting off here with Al Jazeera, and the headline is Russia-Ukraine updates IAEA seeks permanent presence uh, at uh, plant. And of course, we're talking about uh, the nuclear plant uh, that's been in the media quite a lot over the last few days, Patrick. Yeah, this is the, the Europe's largest nuclear facility, uh, the most amount of reactors at Zaporizhia, and there's been clashes there recently. Uh, this has been reported in the international press as both sides are at fault. We get this usual sort of uh, narrative that's uh, trying to basically say both sides are at fault. I'll show you some uh, some interesting statements from the UN in just a second. But this, Mike, this is exactly what we've spoken about uh, on the program previously in reference to this issue, is that this would provide uh, any sort of escalation around these nuclear power plants, um, will provide the, quote, international community with the sort of backdoor um, that they've been looking for. Um, I'm talking about NATO, United States, G7 countries to get uh, some sort of a foothold into Ukraine. And this is exactly uh, what's been playing out now this week. Uh, so they're they're moving in uh, with inspectors and uh, what's happened, there's been a series of uh, provocations. Uh, the international community is trying to say that it's partly Russia's fault, when in fact, if you actually look at these statements, the data, the evidence that's being presented uh, internationally, um, it's pretty obvious that Ukraine or Ukrainian commandos um, have been responsible uh, for the attacks, the provocations. Um, and so Russia's invited and has, has been pursuing the International Atomic Energy Agency to come in with inspectors, 
to make sure that the site's okay. Um, they've been cooperating with them, um, but it's been cast in the international media as like Russians, you know, are, are, aren't sort of, you know, cooperating properly, et cetera. So it's, this has been spun incredibly. So now we see uh, this brings us to the other part of this is that Russia has captured uh, some Ukrainian soldiers who were uh, in the process of uh, mounting an attack um, around this facility. And so this is exactly uh, what we saw, uh, very similar to what you saw in, in East Ghouta uh, in 2013. You remember when the Syrian government uh, invited the UN uh, chemical weapons inspectors to come in, and then lo and behold, attacks on the UN convoy. Uh, they tried, international media tried to blame this on the, quote, Assad regime, how brazen they were to attack UN inspectors at Carla del Ponte uh, and others who have come to basically inspect these sites. And this was going to be used as a pretext to mount military strikes on Syria at the time, if we remember. Um, so this very similar situation here that could have unfolded, it looks like it's been thwarted by the Russians. And you, it, you won't hear a peep about this uh, in the international media. So we put the heretical news story from RT, which is a Russian disinformation outlet, according to the UK uh, government here. But, you know, it's pretty clear you know, Ru Ru Russia has also been thanked by the UN Secretary General Gutierrez spokesperson. And you read this and people will say, well, that's Russian propaganda. Well, actually, no. Uh, we've got a clip uh, from the UN Secretary General spokesperson in New York now, if we, if we can roll that. Uh, Russian Defense Ministry today, it's about the IAA mission, the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant. Russian Defense Ministry today stated that uh, the Ukrainian group of saboteurs tried to uh, attempted to um, seize, to capture the station in order to use the mission as a human shield. So they were neutralized according to the Defense Ministry and uh, the officials of Russian Defense Ministry express bewilderment, I quote, uh, due to the lack of reaction of the UN Secretary General to this incident. Do you have any reaction in this regard? You know, we're, we are glad that the Russian Federation did what it needed to do to keep uh, keep our the, the inspectors uh, safe. I think uh, our security people, our drivers, have done a tremendous job in getting uh, the IEA inspectors in. Um, they will continue to support the mission until it ends, and it is. Um, like with any UN uh, mission, it is the responsibility of those uh, in um, uh, who have uh, power over a certain area and who are responsible for a certain area to keep uh, UN staff uh, safe. So there you have it. So, and again, I can't un uh, I, um, uh, underline the similarities between what was unfolding in Syria in August of 2013. Similar type of situation. I don't know if Vanessa wants to comment on that one. So you're muted, Vanessa. Um, not only 2013, even 2018. If you remember when the IPCW inspectors arrived and they were taken to Duma, they were shot at uh, by terrorist sleeper cells that were still present in the area and they were swiftly brought back. And then, of course, the Syrian government was portrayed as delaying um, the investigation despite their efforts to keep the UN or the OPCW inspectors effectively safe. So, And also, um, I think very similar um, conditions during the investigation of the MH17 crash also 
So, you know, this is a, this is a familiar playbook by NATO proxies to disrupt any kind of investigation that will, of course, demonstrate who is responsible for the attacks, in this case on the nuclear plant, but in Syria, who's responsible for the chemical attack. Of course, we know the, the, the 2018 dossier was then completely buried and, and uh, corrupted. <clears throat> but yeah, it's, it's, a familiar, it's a familiar scene playing out. Um, okay, Vanessa, let's uh, move on to Syria mm -hmm. then. And uh, we're going to start off mm -hmm. with a, a little bit of uh, video. Uh, do you want to just introduce this briefly? Yeah, this is uh, basically the latest Israeli attack that I'm quite sure nobody will have heard of uh, in Western media. The BBC will not have covered this. This was two nights ago at around 8 o'clock at night. Um, Israel attacked uh, Aleppo International Airport from the Mediterranean uh, coastal waters, and then one hour later attacked or tried to attack Damascus International Airport. So this is the attack filmed by an amateur, obviously, uh, on Aleppo International Airport. Um, so Aleppo International Airport did suffer uh, material uh, damage. There was damage to the runways. I was told today that the airport will be up and functional again or operational within two days. So it hasn't caused any lasting damage uh, and it's being dealt with just as quickly as, of course, they dealt with previously the attacks on Damascus International Airport. Um, what is Israel trying to do? I mean, as I said, this was not reported. I couldn't find a report anywhere in Western media, um, only in the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, which is an opposition or a terrorist biased outlet uh, based in the UK, funded by the EU. Um, they do state that four Israeli shells hit a runway of the airport in Aleppo. Um, but the interesting thing here, uh, of course, there you also get the... Um, uh, the, the fact that there, there is a claim that it was Iranian missiles that were hit, which is totally nonsense. Um, but interesting that here they also claim um, that Russian and Syrian government forces were positioned at the airport. This is true. Um, Russia used to actually have planes at this airport, not any longer. It now has a sort of skeleton staff and office there. But this is quite interesting because this is probably the first time that Israel has directly targeted an area that may have contained um, Russian military personnel. The report does also say that Israel gave a 10-minute warning or, or a warning to the uh, Russians that were there to be able to uh, evacuate from the area. That also is standard practice between Russia and Israel. Um, <clears throat> now, what I really want to talk about uh, here today is this continuing discourse, much of it on Twitter, I have to say, about uh, the perceived view that Russia is not doing enough um, to the aid of Syria during these Israeli attacks. The number one point I will make, of course, is that Russia, above all, respects Syrian sovereignty. 
and it is very careful to allow Syria to defend itself um, at every single opportunity. And Syria does a very good job of defending itself. The majority of the missiles, for example, that after the Aleppo airport attack, one hour later they tried to target uh, Damascus International Airport. Um, those missiles were intercepted and brought down and Damascus Airport was kept safe. Um, <clears throat> but I want to look at a story that has been circulating both in Israeli and American media particularly, but has even been picked up <clears throat> within the independent media um, community. So this uh, satellite image was published on Twitter by an organization called uh, ImageSat International, um, claiming to show that Russia was redeploying its S-300 from close to Mesyaf. Now remember, Mesyaf Research Center was targeted by Israel um, one week ago now. Um, and this was then picked up by uh, various, oh sorry, um, if we actually look at who ISI are, um, they're a space-based intelligence world leader. Where are they based? Uh, in Israel. So this is Israeli intelligence basically leading with this story. The story is then picked up by Pentagon-aligned uh, American war and defense sites like the war zone. Now, the title here is particularly misleading. So it says Russia pulls its Syrian S-300 missile battery and ships it to the Black Sea. Um, now, I'll get on to exactly how many S-300s are inside Syria in a minute. But let's look at who's providing the uh, intelligence for this article. Number one, of course, it's coming in from uh, Ukrainian um, media like the Kiev Independent. Uh, Ukrainian intelligence, Russia has uh, no more than 45%, sorry, I have to smile at this point, of its missiles left. And effectively, the claim here is that Russia needs this S-300 battalion back in Ukraine to, uh, to, to, to enable it to continue uh, in the conflict in, in Ukraine. So it's running out of missiles, apparently, according to this article. Um, and it then goes on to say, uh, regardless, Russia's decision to recall these missiles from Syria signals a dire need in its ongoing special military operation. They had a purpose, deterrent, symbolic, symbolic or otherwise, in Syria that Israel underscored within days of the missile's departure. Now, a point I need to make here, this battery was withdrawn after the attack on the Mesyaf research center, so not before the attack on the research center. The article is trying to claim that Israel took advantage of the withdrawal of this S-300 battalion to carry out further attacks. Well, it didn't attack the Mesyaf Research Center. It attacked Aleppo and it attacked um, Damascus. Um, it then goes on to say to shift such high-profile resource and leave a major ally exposed shows both Russia's laser focus on its increasingly precarious all-out invasion of Ukraine and the level of priority it now puts on its involvement in Syria and the Assad regime. This is ridiculous. Russia has been an ally of, or the Soviet Union has been an ally of Syria for, for 
decades. And it's one of the reasons that this war is happening. Russia, from a pragmatic real politic perspective, is not going to abandon Syria. Syria is the gateway to Eurasia. But even from, from a historical military uh, tran, you know, uh, bilateral agreement, it's not going to abandon Syria. In fact, military collaboration is expanding and expanding within Syrian territory at the moment between Syria and Russia. Now, I've spoken to various <clears throat> people who have basically said to me, the chances are that this particular battalion um, is being withdrawn in order to potentially be replaced by an updated version to increase the defense. But what is also important to make very clear here, Russia has deployed S-300s in Syria to defend its own position, to defend Haimamim uh, base, to defend Russian troop deployment inside Syria. Syria, however, has, and it owns, um, four battalions of S-300. Um, now, what are the S-300s? So each uh, battalion of S-300 system includes long-range radar to detect hostile targets, um, a vehicle that analyzes data, six vehicles that act as missile launchers. Each vehicle carries six missiles and a short-range radar that tracks targets and directs missiles towards them. Um, two missiles can be fired at each target within a time difference of no more than three seconds. The S-300 can deal with 24 aircraft or 16 ballistic missiles and has a range of 250 kilometers. Putting a battalion into engagement um, mode and dealing with hostile targets takes no more than five minutes when on the move, which is a very short time. Why are the S-300s that Syria has and that Russia is not taking away from Syria, why are they not being deployed? Well, I'll continue with this in a minute, but what is it? it's important to understand that Iran has also supplied missile defense systems to Syria from 2018 onwards, the Bavar 373, which has very similar technical capability to uh, the S-300. In fact, it's potentially between the S-300 and the S-400. This also hasn't been deployed yet against Israeli uh, hostility. Why? Because Syria knows full well that there is very probably going to be increased escalation in the future. Why is Israel carrying out these attacks now? It's trying to probe. It's one, trying to destroy Syria's uh, economic capability by destroying uh, the airports, but it's also destroying uh, early warning radar systems, air defense bases or, or areas of air defense bases. Um, launch pads in military air bases, etc. It's effectively trying to, one, destroy Syria's defense capability should there be an escalation. And there is, of course, escalation now with Hezbollah over the gas, gas fields, etc. Um, and it's also trying to probe to see where the Iranian and the S-300 are, right? And, and for this reason, it also, what it does is it, inundates Syria with missiles so that to, to some degree the air defense can respond to a certain number and then it has to reload and at that point Israel is able to target that area. Okay, so in my view and in the view of many military experts here, Syria is simply not using these because it doesn't want to reveal 
where they are at this point in the conflict with Israel. They also have uh, the Savon Kordad, which is equivalent to the BUK uh, system from the Soviet Union. And of course, Syria is defending itself predominantly with the Panzer S1s, and it's doing a very adequate job with that. Um, <clears throat> but I think you know the important thing here is to, to, to quash <laughs> this idea that Russia is abandoning Syria in any way, shape, or form, or that yeah. it doesn't allow Syria to use the S-300s. Whatever decisions are made over air defense are joint decisions with, with Syria in ascendancy. In other words, Syrian sovereignty is respected at all times. Now, what is also interesting is that Israel, through its various media, has at times claimed that Iran has used advanced air defense batteries against Israel and Syria. Again, according to my sources, not true. But this is justification for Israel um, to, to target Syria to try and eliminate what it deems as hostile Iranian military equipment inside Syria. Um, now, interesting language used in this Jerusalem Post article, war between war operations. This confirms the fact that Israel sees this as a sort of hiatus between wars, between the previous war, but it certainly perceives that there is another war coming with Syria. And that sort of bolsters my idea or, or my speculation that Syria is not using its more sophisticated air defense in order to keep the positioning hidden from Israel. Also here, interesting, the IAF has carried out thousands of strikes on Syria since 2013 around 23 strikes already this year. None of them, of course, are protested by the UN or by any uh, human rights organizations, and also has carried out strikes in Iraq and Yemen, again, very rarely mentioned in Western media. Now, I, I just want to cover a couple of other things that people are getting a little bit confused about. In Idlib, um, the government has basically put together a comprehensive settlement for everyone who wants to lay down arms in Idlib. Uh, it includes all the people of Idlib province who are in the areas controlled by the terrorists in the north or outside Syria, which uh, includes uh, Turkey, including military and civilians. Citizens wishing to settle will be received in Khan Shehun, uh, which is in southern Idlib under the control of the Syrian Arab army and the Russians and the Syrian government from Monday, September the 5th. This is in correlation with the fact that the government now is um, uh, alleviating pressure on conscripts into the army. So this is an indication that the government now is, is taking its foot off the pedal of the, the military operations, except, of course, for special operations in the Northeast. The other aspect which is uh, being hotly um, debated, particularly on Twitter, is whether there is going to be uh, an imminent meeting between President Assad and President Erdogan. Erdogan and Turkey and his foreign minister have indeed been, been pushing a sort of rapprochement with Syria, but it, it's based on um, pressure, basically. Erdogan is facing um, an election in Turkey in June 2023. He was told very clearly at the summit uh, in July, on July the 19th in Tehran, that if he entered Syria or if he continued with the military operation against uh, the Kurdish separatists, um, then he would be fighting uh, not only Syria, but 
Russia and Iran. So he's backed off on that. He's now making statements along, along the lines of diplomacy can never be cut off. Ankara needs to secure further steps with Syria. And he's backtracked completely on his original goal from 2011 to 2012 uh, that he no longer wishes to defeat Syrian President Bashar al-Assad. This is coming because the power balance has shifted completely. And Erdogan knows that he needs President Assad, he needs Syria in order to deal with the Kurdish separatist issue. And he also needs President Assad to work with him on political solutions in order to hopefully lead to his re-election in June 2023. He needs to be able to deal um, with the refugee situation, five million Syrian refugees inside Turkey that Erdogan needs to deal with. That's a major issue for his uh, election campaign. Also, the Turkish opposition is snapping at his heels and they're scenting blood. So the, the Turkish opposition has been pushing for meetings with Bashar al-Assad. So Erdogan basically is being pushed gradually more and more into a corner as regards Syria. And I don't think we're going to see an imminent meeting. My view is that President Assad, who's a long-term strategist, will wait and see what's happening leading up to the election before he makes any decision um, to have a public meeting with either, well, with the Turkish ruling party, whoever it may be. Okay, brilliant. Thank you for that. Thank you for that, Vanessa. Now, uh, we're just sticking with uh, defence and war and so on uh, very quickly. Uh, the Irish Examiner here had this article this morning, uh, Indian launches new aircraft carrier as China concerns grow. And the implication is that India is doing this because of uh, China's development of, uh, of its defence capabilities. Uh, and uh, they're very concerned about China. I would just remind everybody uh, about this huge exercise going on in the east of Russia, uh, Vostok 2022, involving, um, you know, uh, Russia, obviously, China, India, uh, Kyrgyzstan, and, uh, and the others that you can see on screen there. Now, India has, of course, taken part in exercises uh, with other nations as well. Uh, India and the EU, according to naval technology here, conduct joint naval exercises in the Gulf of Aden. This was uh, in 2021. Uh, this was an anti-piracy exercise, so it wasn't anything uh, like on the scale of Vostok 2022. Uh, and the other area that India is involved in, of course, is the so-called Quad. Uh, and uh, this, some people saying that uh, uh, the Quad is some kind of embryonic uh, alternative to NATO involving India, the United States, uh, and a couple of other countries. But uh, Patrick, this simply isn't the case. And, and very briefly, um, I'm not saying the same degree of uh, cooperation between India uh, and NATO countries uh, as we're seeing between India, uh, China and Russia at the moment. And so any suggestion in the Western media that uh, India is building new aircraft carriers because they're worried about China, I, I just don't see that at this point. No, you don't see it. What you do see is India pursuing uh, policies that are in its own self-interest, uh, so exerting its own uh, sovereignty. Uh, one of the big issues there, of course, is where it's going to be buying its oil, uh, where it's going to buy its gas. And this, he, they've, uh, the Modi government, because they haven't uh, committed to shutting Russia out of that equation. So they're basically saying, no, we're going to go uh, with the best price um, and with the best delivery terms and et cetera. So this is what they've done. So what you have seen and what should get more attention 
There's the fact that India is now considering uh, providing Pakistan uh, with some financial aid. And, you know, along that conversation, possibly it's going to become better diplomacy as well. So I think it's, I think personally, I've said this for years, it's in the interest of United States and Britain that Pakistan and India are at each other's throats constantly. Uh, and this is also used to create some polarity with, uh, with China in the region as well. Um, so the bottom line here is to, from the Western point of view, will be to stymie uh, the development of trade routes uh, via the Belt and Road Initiative, but just the natural um, cooperation between uh, Southeast Asia, the ASEAN states, Myanmar, China, India, Pakistan, et cetera, all these countries to try to um, stop that development, slow it down, disrupt it, um, because that's going to lead to basically the problem down the road uh, in the great game 2.0, which is to try to c cut off uh, Europe, specifically Germany, uh, or the economic powerhouses in Europe from engaging uh, directly uh, with Russia and with the East, uh, because that means that all the, the geopolitical center of gravity uh, will be in Eurasia and not in the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, so this this is one thing that we're looking at. Yeah, indeed. Uh, and let's just uh, quickly put uh, Matthew Rycloft on screen. Uh, he's formerly, of course, permanent representative for the UK in the United Nations. He's currently Home Office Permanent Secretary. He's been in Fiji in the last couple of days uh, in order to stir things up there because uh, we don't want any kind of uh, uh, cooperation with China in the region. Let's see what he said. The UK is providing £15 million for the Pacific region through its Conflict Stability and Security Fund program. Uh, and, uh, well, Vanessa, just very, very briefly, uh, there is a comma there. If we just put that back on screen for a second, Stephanie, there is a comma there between conflict and the words conflict and stability. My view has always been that that comma really isn't appropriate because every time we see conflict, stability and security fund money being put into a particular region, it tends to be to support the stability of the conflict that is there already or, and so on. Or am I being unfair? No, 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 you're being totally fair. I mean, yeah, the, the, the Conflict Stability and Security Fund is there to fund instability in target nations, uh, very much as we saw in Syria, of course. Yes. Uh, and Patrick, uh, then finally in this segment, uh, Poland puts its World War II losses at $1.3 trillion and demands German reparations. It really, honestly, you, you couldn't make it up, Mike. But yeah, this is this is actually this is actually happening. There are uh, loud noises uh, within the Polish government uh, to want to demand rep more reparations uh, from Germany for damage done during World War II. You have to remember this issue was totally put to bed uh, in 1953, uh, and here we have how many years later? What are we? Seventy years later or something? Uh, it's being resurrected again. And so where's this rift coming from? There's one of the reasons why this is happening, why there's, you start seeing these fissures between EU member states is because of the issue of Ukraine. So there are people in Poland that are angry at Germany for not providing enough arms or enough assistance or not cutting off enough Russian energy uh, because of the Ukraine issue. So it's, it's amazing how the infighting has begun. When, the, when you start to tighten the economic screws um, on the EU, on these countries like Poland, like Germany, other states, then, you know, then the money is not flowing uh, as much. Uh, there's shortages. 
people are getting a little bit more frugal. Then the blame game starts, the finger pointing starts. And now <laughs> this is the latest uh, uh, episode. The, the conversation about reparations uh, gets revived as well. So um, I, I don't think positive that's going to come out of this type of, of uh, conversation. But what's next after this? Well, let's talk about borders. You know, there's 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 parts of Poland that Germany would believe possibly that belong to Germany and vice versa. Uh, there's parts of Western Ukraine that Poland would say it's that's their rightful territory. So I, I, I think the next phase, if it starts escalating along these sort of lines, is going to be um, you know, revanchist, uh, uh, re redrawing of, of European maps and things like this. So yeah. this is an incredibly interesting development. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for that. Now let's move on to, uh, to this, uh, from the James Rogowski, uh, Substack, and he's asking, what is the government of the United Kingdom hiding? Freedom of information requests have revealed that the UK is withholding information that in their own worlds, the words would be likely to harm relations between the UK and other World Health Organization member states. So uh, in January 18th, 2022, the Biden administration submitted a number of proposed amendments to the international health regulations. He writes, uh, prior to the 75th World Health Assembly, the UK government was obligated to prepare a legal opinion and a risk analysis of the UK position regarding the proposed amendments. Uh, on the 1st of May, 2022, a UK citizen submitted a freedom of information request uh, requesting the legal opinion and uh, risk analysis. Uh, on the 6th of uh, July, the FY team uh, at the, uh, uh, for the government responded to the request with a counter request for clarification. On the 7th of July, the UK citizen replied via email with a clarification of the request. On the 5th of August, 2022, the Freedom of Information team responded to the request and stated that the information that was requested did indeed exist but would not be made available to the UK citizen. Uh, on the 8th of August, the UK system had submitted a formal request for an internal review of the response. Uh, and uh, on the 25th of August, the, the information Freedom of Information team submitted their final review, uh, which basically looked like this. Uh, to clarify, releasing the requested information would likely harm the relations between the United Kingdom and other World Health Organization member states, while also making public the UK's assessment on the IHR amendments which are subject to international negotiations. In addition, it would likely harm the United Kingdom interests abroad, uh, as well as the promotion or protection of those interests abroad. Uh, and the other key point here is that uh, the, uh, it has been concluded that the release of the information could harm such activities. Um, and well, we've seen this type of uh, uh, nonsense from the UK government, uh, in my case, uh, ongoing with the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office. Uh, let's just remind ourselves, if we look at the uh, situation with the censorship network within the UK government at the moment, uh, the key area here that we want to highlight is the Freedom of Information Clearinghouse. And this basically is a, within the Cabinet Office, a, a section within the Cabinet Office that takes on the most challenging freedom of, freedom of information requests, and particularly if they're coming from people on a particular blacklist. Um, and uh, they get handled centrally to make sure that no mistakes are made. Uh, as I say, I've an ongoing effort with the Foreign Office uh, to get some more information about the uh, counter disinformation media development program headed up by Andy Price. Uh, and that is an impossible task because they're using these types of uh, uh, mechanisms to avoid giving the information out. 
Uh, and then the other thing to mention here is that the uh, counter disinformation and media development team has been expanded uh, and is now known as the government information cell. Uh, you may have people may have an, an opinion about some of these names, but just look at the the number of government departments and sections that are there to deal with not only the types of information that are, are released by government to investigators and researchers, but also to that are also uh, looking at the types of information that's being spread on social media and so on and building an intelligence picture for government uh, and to help government to counter that information. It's not just the UK, however, uh, because uh, Handelsblatt here has an article. Let's do a quick translation of it. Uh, the headline is Concern for Internal Security. The Office for Protection of the Constitution warns of Russian false information about gas shortages and so on. And so what's this saying? It's... Uh, uh, this was as a result of a press conference held by the director of the Federal Office for the Protection of the Constitution. Uh, and he was warning that citizen protests against war in Ukraine, rising prices, inflation and anti-COVID measures uh, would be infiltrated by right-wing extremists and, extremists and conspiracy believers. And he's basically using that narrative to justify exactly the same type of uh, infrastructure being built up to control the narrative in Germany and to spy on German citizens and the types of information that they're spreading on the internet, as we've had in the UK for quite a number of uh, years now. And uh, then just to finish this off, uh, I'll just make the point that uh, obviously we mentioned at the start of the program, uh, the uh, leadership election taking place at the closing today and the announcement on Monday. Uh, it was interesting, I thought that uh, the only parliamentary bill that had been updated today uh, was the online safety bill. This, of course, has been delayed uh, and is going to be uh, back on the agenda once there is a new leader of and a new prime minister. Um, so this was updated. The, the page on the parliamentary bills website was updated today, clearly very much uh, at the forefront of the upcoming parliamentary session. Uh, but Patrick, uh, Twitter now allowing people to edit their tweets. Yeah, for the for the low low price of four ninety nine, you become become a, a member of Twitter Blue, uh, and you'll be able you got thirty minutes to edit your tweets. There'll be a Wikipedia style uh, editing uh, tree there, so you can go in and see the edits that've been made. Um, but a lot of people have been asking for this for uh, for years. I, I've, I'm of a mixed view on this. Um, the whole point of Twitter is the thrill of the permanence there. That whatever state you, you know statement you make is going to be nailed to the wall. You can't change it. You so you got to delete the tweet, or you got to own it, basically. So that's that, that's been the USP of Twitter. And when you introduce this new thing, I don't know how this is going to change uh, the way people tweet or the statements they make. Uh, Someone make the argument, Mike, that it means they're going to spend longer on each tweet. In other words, you compose the tweet, then you have second thoughts about it, then you're going to revise it, then you're going to revise it again. And then you might say, oh, that's too much. Then you're going to delete it. Then you're going to repost it again. Um, certainly that people do more laborious comments and uh, revisions on uh, platforms like Facebook, um, where Twitter, before a lot of time is spent composing the tweet, then you tweet it, and then it's up there, basically, and you just own it. Now they've introduced this. I think, personally, this is degrading um, the sort of fundamental quality of Twitter. I don't know what your thoughts are on this. 
Well, uh, I mean, I, I, I don't know is the answer. I don't uh, particularly have any. But look, let's uh, let's just finish off here. Uh, we've got a couple of uh, video clips. Uh, first of all, Joe Biden. Well, the midterm elections are coming up. This is a high stakes election, one of the most consequential elections uh, in U.S. history, some would argue here. And so angry Joe Biden has been wheeled out. So this is like angry Joe. You've got uh, quiet Grandpa Joe. Now you've got angry Joe. So whatever they've done to juice his coffee or whatever, he's come out last night uh, swinging, basically accusing the Republican Party of being an extremist party uh, that doesn't observe the rule of law, that's anti-constitutional, uh, et cetera. Uh, I just have to roll this clip and you can kind of hear it for yourself. Much of what's happening in our country today is not normal. Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans represent an extremism that threatens the very foundations of our republic. But there's no question that the Republican Party today is dominated, driven, and intimidated by Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans. And that is a threat to this country. So there it is. There it is, uh, straight from the horse's mouth. So the divisiveness, um, this is the basket of deplorables moment for uh, for the White House, for Joe Biden. I don't know how much further they can go with this. The main complaint, if you look at the Washington Post, is wall-to-wall January 6th committee, uh, Trump, Mar-a-Lago, hiding documents, etc. The main thing that the mainstream press is attacking uh, Republicans for is questioning the uh, results or the election irregularities in 2020. Um, so apparently this is tantamount to treason now uh, in America. If you question any of the means or methods uh, by which elections are conducted, vote counting happens, or any kind of allegations of fraud, um, well, it, a lot of Democrats made those allegations in 2016, and in fact went so far as to blame uh, the victory of Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton as being a Russian uh, influence operation or Russian interference operation. That was fair game back then. But now on the other side of the coin, uh, partisan wise, it's not. Now, uh, Carrie Lake is uh, running for governor uh, in Arizona, and uh, she's made some pretty controversial statements. Um, but she's been challenged by the mainstream press at a recent rally about this issue of challenging the elections. And here's her response. So listen carefully uh, to how she feels this challenge by a mainstream journalist on this issue. Do you I can't hear you. Sorry, you said you feel like Joe Biden is dividing the country, but do you feel like Donald Trump is doing the same by falsely telling people that he won that election when he lost it? How does that divide the country? Questioning, questioning an election where there are obviously problems is, is dividing the country? Since when can we not ask questions about our elections? As a journalist for many years, I was a journalist after 2016, and I distinctly remember many people just like you asking a lot of questions about the 2016 election results. And nobody tried to shut you up. Nobody tried to tell Hillary Clinton to shut up. Nobody tried to tell Kamala Harris when she was questioning 
the legitimacy of these electronic voting machines to stop. We're, we have freedom of speech in this country, and you of all people should appreciate that. You're supposedly a journalist. You should appreciate that. So I don't see how asking questions about an election where there are many problems is dividing a country. What I do see dividing a country is shutting people down, censoring people, canceling people, trying to destroy people's lives when they do ask questions. Last I heard, we still have the Constitution. It's hanging by a thread, thanks to some of the work some people in this area have done. But we're going to save that Constitution, and we're going to bring back freedom of speech. And maybe someday you'll thank us for that. Strong stuff, Patrick. Strong stuff, and you're, look, you're looking at potentially there, if she's successful in her governor run uh, in November, you're looking at a potential running mate for Donald Trump or for Ron DeSantis there in Kerry Lake. Now, she doesn't have a lot of political experience. Her experience has been in media, but you can see how uh, well presented she is and how cogent she is with her arguments. She's a pretty impressive uh, force uh, from that sort of uh, political PR point of view. So, and she's a very strong supporter of Trump and a very strong uh, conservative. So, very interesting character that's emerged on the political scene in America. Yeah, brilliant. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Patrick. Thanks to Vanessa. We're going to have to end it there. Um, we will be back in a few minutes on the main live stream for some extra. Uh, but otherwise, uh, well, hopefully we'll see as many people as possible on uh, the Alternative View uh, conference on Sunday. But we'll be back for a news program uh, at uh, 1 p.m. as usual on Monday. I hope everyone has a great weekend. See you then. Bye bye.